Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing it is that Christ is our hope. Father, we are eternally grateful for the miracle that you have wrought in us, the forgiveness of our sins, the salvation of our souls. Father, we, apart from you, are sinners destined for destruction. And so, Father, we know that if it were not for your work, for the death of your Son, for the work of your Spirit, that we too would be destroyed. And so, Father, thank you for the grace that you have shown to us in Christ. Father, today as we come to your word together, Lord, I pray that it would be an encouragement to us, that it would be a challenge to us, that, Lord, it would be a blessing to our souls, that as we rightly understand your scriptures, Lord, that we would know that they aim, they aim to point us to Jesus and to make us more like him. And so, Father, this morning, as, as I preach, as your people here, I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and in our minds to draw us to Christ, that we would know him today. Father, change us and shape us by the work of your Spirit. Work a miracle in us today, Father, that we would be sanctified in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Paul's letter to Philemon. So this morning we're going to conclude our very brief two-week series through this very brief letter. As I mentioned last week, this letter is written in order to encourage Philemon to receive Onesimus back into his household. Onesimus was a slave who had run away and encountered Paul during his travels. We're not sure if he had just happened upon Paul by the grace of God or if he intentionally sought Paul out. We're not really sure exactly the, the circumstances that led to that uh, union there, but that is what happened. And as we're going to see today in our text, something even more significant happened during the course of that encounter. And this is Paul encouraging Philemon to receive Onesimus, uh, Onesimus back into his household. Last week, as we covered the first seven verses, we talked about the ways that we relate to one another, the connections that we have in Christ, as well as the ways that we should be seeking to build one another up. And today we're going to deal with the substance of this letter. And we're going to talk about what it means for us in our relationships with other believers. Specifically, we're going to recognize that our connection to Christ supersedes all other commitments and loyalties. Most significantly, it supersedes our commitment and loyalty to ourselves. We as Christians must pursue and embrace reconciliation with other believers, no matter the personal cost. That's what we find in the book of Philemon. So let's look together at Philemon, beginning in verse 8, where we find a beloved 
brother. If you got one of our bulletins or picked up one of our sermon listening guides from the back table, you'll see our points there this morning. We have two, and that first one is a beloved brother. And so let's read together uh, the book of Philemon, starting in verse 8 through verse 21. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you I, Paul, an old man now, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. So Paul turns here in verse 8 to the matter at hand in writing this letter. And right there at the very beginning, that word that is translated in my Bible accordingly, that is the Greek word dio, and that literally means for this reason. It's translated as accordingly in my Bible. Maybe it's there for in yours, but it literally means for this reason. So the first seven verses that we covered last week, particularly verses four through seven, where Paul is reminding Philemon of the connectedness that they have with one another as brothers and sisters, as fellow workers, as fellow soldiers, all of those things. And him talking to Philemon, reminding him of how thankful he is for the ways that he is a blessing to him personally and to the church as a whole. All of those things are written for the purpose of what Paul is writing this letter for. Paul is saying, I write those things in order that I might say this. Now, it's tempting here for us, and we should be careful, to not think of this as Paul being manipulative, right? All of us, all of us have experienced people trying to butter us up before they ask for something. Parents, right? Your kids come to you. Have I told you how pretty you are today, mom? Can I please have some money? right? It's tempting for us in our flesh to read what Paul did in those verses and think, man, he's laying it on thick. So that Philemon kind of has to do what he says as he buttered him up in advance. But Paul is not given to flattery. That's what that is. That's the biblical understanding of flattery, where you tell people nice things for the express purpose of getting something from them. That's, what, that, that's not what Paul is doing. Paul is being genuine and sincere. 
He is telling, he is saying these things to Philemon specifically because it's true. And so he is wanting to appeal to Philemon to, quote, do what is required. That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, I, I, I'm appealing to you to do what is required. Now, Paul does note here, he says, although I am bold enough to command you. I'm bold enough to command you. Now, I would say there's ample evidence in Paul's letters to show us that this is the truth. There is ample evidence that Paul is bold enough to command. And Consider 1 Corinthians 5.13 where Paul tells the Corinthian church to enact church discipline on one of their members by saying, purge the evil person from among you. A lot of boldness in that statement. Not mincing words, not maybe you guys ought to consider this. Paul is definitely bold enough to command. And so he is telling Philemon, look, I have the ability, I have the boldness, I have the authority as an apostle that I could just tell you what to do here. But out of respect and love for Philemon, out of respect and love for the Holy Spirit who has worked in Philemon, who has brought about those things that we saw and talked about in verses 4 through 7, Paul chooses to appeal to him here. It speaks to the depth of their love and their relationship that he would appeal instead of command. It shows us the genuine admiration that Paul has for Philemon's faith. He trusts that Philemon will do what is right because of the love that Philemon has for Jesus Christ. That's why he is willing to appeal rather than command. And so what is it that is required? What is it that is required? Well, if you skip down to verse 17, you will see what it is that Paul is expecting of Philemon. He says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul is encouraging Philemon to receive Onesimus back into his household just as he would receive Paul. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to take a sidestep here and, and give some explanation that's going to help us understand what's happening here. So we know that Onesimus was a slave. Now, the type of slavery that's in view here is significantly different than what we think of as slavery from our own country's history. When we think of slavery, we think of what happened here in America, more than likely. That type of slavery, which is rooted in man-stealing, provides no legitimate means of escape, and trapping entire lineages of people in an endless cycle of being treated as subhuman, is explicitly condemned in Scripture. Exodus 21.16 says it very plainly. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So the type of slavery that we saw in American history was absolutely wicked, according to Scripture. There are Christians out there who will claim otherwise, who will say, well, you know, it really wasn't that bad, and there were, servant, there were slave masters who treated their servants well, and all of that may very well be true, but these were people who were stolen. And Exodus 21.16 tells us plainly that God takes this so seriously that anyone who steals a man and sells him, and then anyone found in possession of that man, 
should all be put to death. So that is not the kind of slavery that is in view here, because if it was, it is entirely probable that Paul would have just straight up said to Philemon, you can't have slaves like this. This is wickedness. Release all of your servants now. And so the fact that Paul doesn't do that tells us that this is something different than that. Other people have pointed to the fact that Paul doesn't immediately command Philemon to release all of his slaves as evidence of the Bible condoning slavery and why we shouldn't listen to the Bible on matters of morality. That is also not true. Because the kind of slavery that is in view here is more like indentured servitude. This is someone who has essentially offered themselves as a servant for the purposes of paying off a significant debt. Think of the old sitcom trope where someone wrecks your car so they're forced to become your butler. That kind of thing, right? They owe you a great deal of money that they cannot pay, so they say, okay, I am the payment for this debt. I will come and serve in your household as a servant until my debt is paid. Notice the differences. This person is voluntarily entering into this relationship. This person has a means of escape. Once their debt is paid, they are free to go. It is not something that is maintained forever and ever and ever in perpetuity. It's very different than what we think of when we think about slavery. At the same time, Philemon has rights over Onesimus. And in running away, Onesimus has violated the law. And I'm speaking specifically of Roman law. He has run away, and so he is considered to be both a runaway slave and a thief. And so there are consequences for his actions. Now, some have said, well, the fact that he ran away is evidence that he was probably mistreated, that Philemon probably was a cruel master. Think about how Paul speaks of Philemon in verses 4 through 7. There is nothing there that would indicate that this is a man who is given over to abusing the people in his household. In fact, everything we read of Philemon, everything we know of him, would seem to indicate that he probably treats his servants better than most in that day. And so Philemon left likely because he just didn't want to be a servant anymore. He just decided, I don't want to do this, and he took off. And according to the laws of, of the time in the Roman Empire, Philemon could have taken punitive action against Onesimus for running away. He could have him imprisoned. He could have him severely beaten. He could even have him killed. Those are all things that are within his rights as a Roman citizen, that he can do that. But Paul appeals to Philemon to take a different approach due to Philemon's changed nature in Christ. The primary basis for this appeal is that Onesimus has now had the same change in his nature during his time with Paul. Paul says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So what we're told here is that through his encounter with Paul, Onesimus has been saved by Christ. 
because we know Paul is very fond of sharing the gospel with literally everybody he comes across. And there is no doubt that whether he encountered Onesimus by chance or Onesimus sought him out, Paul immediately set about talking to him about the Lord. And Onesimus became a Christian. And this was not one of those classic jailhouse conversions where he became a Christian in order to try to get out of trouble. This was real, genuine, legitimate conversion. He is a real, true believer. And so now he's no longer simply a bondservant of Philemon's. He is his brother in Christ. He is a fellow Christian. His status in life has changed entirely. And so Paul is making his appeal based on that. He is saying, hey, listen, your manner of conduct toward Onesimus is changed because Onesimus is changed. You have to consider these things now. And Paul there uh, makes a little statement, a parenthetical in verse 11, where he says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. At first glance, that seems kind of insulting. Like Paul's like, yeah, he wasn't even really that good of a servant anyway. But that's not what's happening here. This is Paul's, Paul loves wordplay. It's one of the things he really enjoys doing in his letters. And Onesimus' name literally means useful. It literally means useful. That's literally what his name means. And so Paul is saying, hey, you had this servant whose name was literally useful, but before he was useless to you. But now, now that he is in Christ, not only is he useful to you, he's useful to me. He is now useful for the things that matter. Because the things of Philemon's household don't really matter. They don't have eternal significance. But the kingdom of God, however, has eternal significance. And so now, because Onesimus has been saved by faith in Christ through grace alone, now he is useful, truly useful. And so all of a sudden, everything has changed. This is not just a runaway slave who probably took money on his way out the door. This is a fellow believer who comes from a wealthy household that has a lot of time on his hands. And so here's Paul saying, you need to consider this. But Paul wants to make sure that he handles this situation in the correct way. He does not lean on Philemon to make sure that the right thing happens. He doesn't command him, like I said before. He doesn't say to him, you know, you really ought to set him free. You really ought to do this or that. He just says, hey, listen, here's, the, here's what's going on. Here's what's happened to Onesimus. I'm sending him back. That's why he sends him back. He literally says, I would love to keep him here with me to help me in my imprisonment. Paul is an old man now. He struggles to do the things that he used to do already anyway, and he's imprisoned. And so having people there to help him allows him to continue his ministry. Because remember, while he is old and not necessarily going off planting churches anymore, he's not traveling like he used to, now he is doing the work of constantly writing letters to the churches, constantly seeking to encourage them and build them up, constantly seeking to correct their errors, of which there are many. It's a full-time job being 
the primary doctrinal apostle in the early church. And so he, he says, I would have rather keep him here with me, but rather than assert my position as an apostle, rather than assert my position as literally the one who led Philemon to Christ, we'll talk more about that in a minute, he says, I want to handle this the right way. He doesn't want Philemon to act under compulsion, but of his own accord. But like I said, he does want to make sure that Philemon thinks about this situation in a biblical way. And he does this from multiple angles. That's why he references their brotherhood. That's why he also points to the sovereign nature of God in using things that man intends for wickedness for his good purposes. In verse 15, what does he say? For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. He says, essentially, who's to say if his running away was not the sovereign work of God that he might be saved? He points to the sovereignty of God here. In the same way that Joseph points to the sovereignty of God to his brothers. Joseph's brothers hated him. He was a little bit on the arrogant side. Fair enough. Nobody likes when their little brother's arrogant. And he was on the arrogant side, and he was dad's favorite for sure, and he had a fancy coat, and his brothers all hated him. And they wanted to kill him. And one of them said, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery instead. And so they did, and they faked his death, told their dad he was dead, and sold him off into slavery, never to be seen again. And by God's good providence, he ended up in Israel, ended up in a place that seemingly was a good place until Potiphar's wife falsely accused him. And he ended up in prison and was in prison for a long time. And while in prison, helped other people, interpreted their dreams, and just kept saying, hey, listen, I'll help you. Just remember me when you get out of here. Remember me. And finally, one day, one of them went, oh, yeah, the king had a dream. Nobody could figure out. There was this one dude that I met in jail. Maybe he can help. And he ends up the right-hand man of Pharaoh in Egypt and allows Pharaoh, helps Pharaoh to plan ahead for a famine that was coming, a disastrous famine. And you know what happens? His family, God's people, are starving to death due to the famine. And they hear, Egypt has food. Let's go beg. And they show up. And Joseph's there. They don't recognize him. But he recognizes them. And instead of acting in vengeance, instead of having them all slaughtered, he helps them. He embraces them. Later on, when their father dies, they all think, well, he was being kind to us because dad was still alive. Now dad's dead. He's going to definitely kill us all now. And he tells his brothers, don't be afraid. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Notice how he says that. He doesn't say what you meant for evil, God used for good. God is not taking the things that are happening and figuring out what to do as they come. The same things that are meant for evil by man, God intends them. God means them for his good purposes. And so Paul is alluding to that here with Philemon and Onesimus. He says, hey, maybe this is why he stole from you and took off 
that he would seek me out, that he would come across me and be saved. What an incredible, wonderful thing that would be. That God would take what Onesimus clearly meant for evil and use it for this good. He wants, Paul wants Philemon to think about this biblically. He is your brother. God is sovereign. And then Paul puts his money where his mouth is, literally. In verse 18, he says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. And he means this sincerely and literally. Paul, an old man in prison, has no home, has very few possessions, relies entirely on the generosity of the church. He says, I will pay you what he owes you. And he goes so far in verse 19, it says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. See, Paul, uh, Paul had very distinctive handwriting. Many scholars think that his thorn in the flesh that he references had something to do with some sort of physical impairment that caused him to have trouble writing. And so his handwriting was apparently very distinct. And so there are times where you see it say in the text, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. It's because typically his letters are dictated to someone who writes them for him. It's probably Timothy in this letter. But he wants to make sure that Philemon knows it's not Timothy making this statement for Paul. It is Paul himself. Paul is saying, I'm writing this with my own hand so you know it's me. I will repay it. This, again, indicates to us that it's likely that Onesimus stole money from Philemon when he left. He probably thought, I need some funds to be out there and do, my, do what I need to do. So he probably made a way to steal some money and took it when he left. But Paul also, in Paul's own way, reminds Philemon that he owes him something far more significant. He says there at the end of verse 19, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Paul says to Philemon, hey listen, Yes, it's true that Onesimus owes you. It's true that he is a servant of yours by virtue of being in debt to you. It's true that he stole from you. But it is also true that you owe me in Christ your very life. And I am setting that aside to tell you I will pay you financially whatever he owes you that is how committed Paul is to reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus he is not just telling Philemon you should just forgive him and let it go he is saying you should forgive him you should reconcile and if the money is the problem I'll pay it I'll handle it. I will make sure that there is no barrier, no barricade, no boundary that is set between you that will keep reconciliation from taking place. There's shades of the parable of the unforgiving servant here in what Paul says in Matthew 18. And you can turn there if you'd like, or you can just listen as I read. But this parable says, Matthew 18, starting in verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. 
Some translations say 70 times 7. The point there is not for you to get out a, a tally sheet and be like, one, two, and get all the way to 76, 77. Yes, finally, I don't, have to de- I don't have to forgive you ever again. You've wronged me 77 times, 78, 78 strikes, you're out. That's it. No. The idea here is that Jesus is saying you should be willing to forgive so many times that you literally lose count. You just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And he illustrates this with a parable, starting in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I'm going to pause here. A talent is a, unit of, is a unit of money worth about 20 years' wages for a laborer. One talent is about 20 years' wages. And this man owed him 10,000 talents. Now, don't get too hung up on the math here. When I was a teenager and I first started trying to figure this out, I was going, how in the world did this dude owe him that much money? That's crazy. Not realizing that what Jesus is doing here is he's just trying to illustrate for us an unpayable debt. You can never, ever, 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 ever pay this off. You are indebted forever. And since he could not pay, duh, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Think about the magnitude of this for a moment. He didn't say, Well, give me what you have. I'll take all your money and then let you go. He just says, You know what? Consider it paid. You're free. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii was a day's wage for a laborer. So about a hundred days worth of work. So 10,000 times 20 years and a hundred days. That's the comparison here of these debts. Relatively small relatively small. Not insignificant, but relatively small. And he finds this man and he seizes him. He began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Sound familiar? It's exactly what he said to the man he owed 10,000 talents to. Have patience with me and I will pay you. This man makes the same plea in the same circumstances. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. This man had been forgiven a debt he could never, ever, ever repay. And he comes across a man who owes him literal pennies in comparison. And instead of extending the same grace and mercy that he had been shown, he is cruel 
and exacting. Now bear in mind, I want you to understand something here. He was 100% within his rights to do that. According to the laws of the day, what he did was just. But according to the mercy that he had been shown, what he did was unjust. It says that when the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Never going to happen. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And there at the end, Jesus makes sure that we completely understand what, is, what he's talking about here. He wants us to recognize and understand that we as sinners have been forgiven a debt that is so massive, so substantial, one that we could never, ever, ever pay. And when we, in turn, refuse to forgive someone who has wronged us, do you know what we're saying? We are saying, I am more worthy than God. God forgave me, but I deserve to hold on to my bitterness and anger. I deserve to have my vengeance against this person who has wronged me. What it shows is that you do not understand grace. What it shows is that you think you deserve forgiveness, and you don't. Those who truly understand forgiveness willingly extend it to others because we know that we have been forgiven far greater than anything that anyone could ever do to us. Our sin against a holy God is infinitely more heinous than any sin against us. And I don't say that lightly. Some of you have been sinned against in ways that are truly horrific and awful. And I don't say this in a flippant way to say, oh, it's no big deal. The hurt you suffered is not a big deal. No, the hurt you suffered is a huge deal. But your sin against a holy God is an infinitely huger and when you say, I will not forgive those who have wronged me, regardless of the extent or nature or severity of that wrong, you are saying, I am more worthy than God. And we're not. We're not. And so Paul puts his money where his mouth is, reminds Philemon of the debt that he personally owes to Paul. But it's also important to recognize that it's not just Paul taking these steps to ensure reconciliation happens. It's also Onesimus. Because Onesimus is likely the one who brought this letter. After running away, after stealing from his master, one day he shows up with a letter from Paul. There is no guarantee that Philemon is even going to read it. There is no guarantee that Philemon will not literally cut him down where he stands. Just in showing up, he is literally 
putting his life in Philemon's hands. He and Paul are both doing the hard and necessary work of reconciliation between brothers in Christ. That's what's happening here. The closest thing to compulsion that we find from Paul in this is found in verse 20, but it's really not even compulsion, where he says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. This isn't really compulsion. This is Paul with a callback to what he said to Philemon in verse 7. He says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He's saying to Philemon, you have done the work of refreshing the hearts of believers. And so now I am asking you to refresh my heart, to do this for my sake because I need you to refresh my heart. I want some comfort from you. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. I want to see the work of the Spirit in you in reconciling with your brother Onesimus. It's calling, he's calling upon Philemon to do what he's known for, refreshing the hearts of fellow believers through his faith and love. And Paul is not doing this and going, I really hope it works. In verse 21, what does he say? Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than what I say. Paul does not have confidence in Philemon in and of himself. Paul has confidence in the Holy Spirit of God who resides within Philemon. Paul has confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ who has shown grace to Philemon. He has total confidence in what the Lord has done in redeeming Philemon's heart. And that's why he knows that Philemon will go beyond what is required. But he does not explicitly say what that required thing should be. Because again, he is leaving that to Philemon to do. He says, I want you to act of your own accord. He doesn't say to Philemon, you should release Onesimus from, servant, from servitude. He doesn't say to him, you should welcome him back and then send him to be with me. All he is saying is, you need to forgive him. You need to forgive your brother. Because that is what Christians do. When I started putting this series together, the, the little subheading of it that the Lord, that I continued to come back to was love one another love one another. Because at root, that is what is happening here in the book of Philemon. Paul is calling upon Philemon to love Onesimus. And that's what this book calls on us to do. But we're not done with Philemon. Because we have in verses 22 through 25 practical matters. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's tempting sometimes when we preach through these letters to kind of gloss over the end. Where it's kind of like, well, what, what does this serve, how does this serve us? What, what does this mean for me? 
But I think there's a few things here that we should take notice of that I do think help us to apply the, the teachings of this letter to our own hearts. First, Paul is so confident of Philemon's obedience that he still plans to come and see him. He's not saying, I'm going to wait until I find out if you do what I think you ought to do, and then I'll come. Then I'll make plans. He is so confident in what the Lord is doing in Philemon's heart that he goes ahead and he says, hey, listen, go ahead and prepare a room because I'm hoping that by God's grace, I'm going to be able to come to you again. This is not a timid letter. This is genuine confidence that Paul has. This is how we as Christians should approach reconciliation with confidence, trusting that the Lord is going to do what is necessary and required in our hearts and in the hearts of the person we are trying to be reconciled to, that that reconciliation would take place. The second thing Paul does is he sends Philemon greetings from the brethren. Again, showing that this reconciliation is going to happen because he's continuing to count Philemon as a part of the brotherhood of believers. He is saying, I know Philemon is not going to kill Onesimus. He's going to forgive him. He is still a part of our, of our group of believers. He is still a follower of Christ. And so these other followers of Christ send greetings to you, brother. And the third thing that we see here at the end is that Paul encourages Philemon with the grace of Christ. Again, this is not just a throwaway sign-off on the letter. This is a legitimate prayer and hope for Philemon that as he takes the hard measures required for reconciliation with his brother Onesimus, that Christ's favor will rest upon him deeply. Reconciling with Onesimus could do financial harm to Philemon. It could do reputational harm to Philemon. He's apparently very wealthy, which means he's likely a successful businessman of some kind. Well, Businessmen don't seem to look too well upon other businessmen who get taken advantage of and do nothing about it. That might mean more people are going to line up to try to take advantage of him. Reconciliation comes with personal cost. And so Paul here at the end of this letter is saying that he is praying for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to rest upon Philemon deeply. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. These are practical ways that we should approach reconciliation with other believers with confidence that the Lord is going to do what is necessary with belief that they are going to respond as Christians should and praying for them that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with their spirit. Brothers and sisters, we must be reconciled to one another and trust in the Lord while doing so. I have seen so many churches broken apart by people who got their feelings hurt, sometimes genuinely, legitimately, but rather than pursue reconciliation, they said, I'm done. That person is dead to me. I have nothing to do with them. We are no longer considered brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm out. So many churches have been so hurt by that kind of thing taking place, and it breaks my heart because that is not how Christians should behave. 
Christians must seek reconciliation. And you might say to me, Brother, Pastor Corey, you, you don't know how I've been hurt. Yes, I do. But more importantly, Christ does. Christ knows how you have been hurt. Christ has hurt with you. Christ has been hurt by you. And yet, he has forgiven you freely. And when we think about how other people harm us, how other people hurt us, that's the very first thing that should weigh on our minds, is that Jesus Christ has forgiven us freely. Because when we love one another, then that means that love keeps no record of wrongs. We don't keep a tally of how many times someone has hurt us before we finally go, you know what, enough's enough. Love bears all things. Love is willing to deal with difficult people because we love them, because we love Christ. Love also is willing to overlook an offense. Are you one of those people that is constantly looking to be offended by something? Always examining for microaggressions and those sorts of things? Stop it. Love overlooks an offense. Do you know how many times people have said things to me that I could have and probably should have been offended by? And I just say, eh, no big deal. And usually I, I add humor to it and I say, man, look, if that's the best you can do, I mean, I've been insulted better by girls in fifth grade. Like, you've got you to gotta step your game up a little bit. But at the end of the day, loving one another means being, being willing to overlook an offense. Because at the end of the day, guess what? You deserve worse. That's the truth. We love to talk about how we don't deserve to be treated that way. We deserve better. No, you don't. You deserve hell. If we're honest with ourselves, that's what we deserve. Now, please hear me. I am not saying that we should submit ourselves to abuse. Under no circumstances am I saying that. Abusive behavior should not be tolerated among the people of God. And I mean that wholeheartedly and sincerely. If you are being abused by someone, you come and tell me. And I'll put a stop to it. Me and my brother's riding with me, right? Don't even have to question it. But it is our responsibility as Christians to forgive even our abuser. That does not mean you submit yourself again to abuse, but it does mean that you are willing to, provided that God's grace does work in their heart, to be reconciled to them as a brother and sister in Christ. That may not mean having the same level of relationship that you did before, but it does mean being willing to see them as a brother and sister in Christ. That's what Paul was calling upon Onesim, or Philemon to do for Onesimus, and that's what the scripture calls upon us to do as Christians. We must pursue and embrace reconciliation no matter the personal cost. That's what Christians must do. And we do that because we have been reconciled to God in Christ. He has saved us from our sin. And so in just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. And I want to encourage you that if you are here today 
And you have not been reconciled to God by grace through faith in Christ. That you come and seek me out and talk to me. Because I would love to share with you how you can do that. If you need someone to pray with you as you seek to be reconciled to another believer, I would be glad to do that too. And it doesn't have to be during this time. It can be after our gathering is over. But don't hesitate to do that, to seek me out for prayer and for counseling because I would love to help you to be reconciled to God and to be reconciled to one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your consistent, persistent, ever-present grace in our lives. Father, that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ that we would be saved by him, that we could be reconciled to you through his blood. And Lord, today as we respond to your word together, I pray, Lord, that you would work a miracle in the hearts of people. That, Lord, if anyone is here who does not know Christ, that they would be saved. Lord, if there are people here who are holding bitterness against their brother or sister in Christ, Lord, that you would help them to let that go and to be reconciled. (coughs) Father, please bless this time. In Christ's name, amen.